We just thank you that we can come before you. We ask that you help Amy and just give her the piece of passes understanding that help her to concentrate on you as she goes through the rest of this night. Lord, we ask you to give us guidance and leading as we go through the, this Bible study tonight and that you will teach us what you would have us to learn from it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 21. Starting at verse 1. And this is all about the priests and, and special rules for the priests that God's going to give them. So we're going to look at these. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say unto them, There shall none of be defiled for the dead among his people, but for his kin that is near unto him, that is, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, or his brother, or for his sister of virgin that is nigh unto him, which has no husband, for her may he be defiled. But he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself. They shall not make baldness on, on their head, neither shall they shave off the corners of their beard, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God, for the offering of the Lord made by fire, and the bread of God they do offer. Therefore they shall be holy. We're going to stop there and look at these first six. So if you remember back when Aaron's two children, Adab and Abihu, were killed, what was, what was Aaron told? Do you remember? Not to grieve. Not to grieve. He was not to grieve for his own sons because he represented Jesus in, in the place of Jesus in the tabernacle presenting the offerings to God. And, and, and Moses told him, according to God, he was not to grieve for his own sons because they died, not a natural death, but they died in judgment for offering strange fire or unauthorized fire. Okay, so he was not to grieve for them. And for those of us who are parents, that's a big deal. To not grieve for your child would be a big commandment to, to have to go through. And so here we are. God is telling the priest in general that if somebody dies, they are not to grieve unless it is somebody close to them. In this case, he's very clear who the, who the close is. Their mother, their father, their brother, their sister, uh, their daughter and their sons, and his sister if she's not married. If his sister is married, he would not be able to grieve for her because she belongs now to a new family according to their traditions. So this, is, this sounds like it's so harsh, and it really is a harsh, harsh thing. If your friend died as a priest, you were not, you were not able to go into these grieving processions or, or defilement. You couldn't touch the body. You couldn't be with them. But we also want to look at this. Defile is not just for uncleanness of the dead. This word for defile literally means to be unclean ceremonial or by disease. This means that we've been talking a lot about people being cut off before the face of their people for their sins when they do something that is truly evil and they're cut off, they are treated as if they are dead. And the Jews still do this to this day. If, if they have a, especially Orthodox Jews, if they have someone in their family that does something that is so bad in their mind, they will treat them as dead. 
such as becoming a Christian. If an Orthodox Jew, a Jew from an Orthodox family becomes a Christian, his family will hold a funeral service for them and treat them as dead. If they call, they won't answer. If, you know, if they have caller ID, they won't answer. If they pick up the phone and it's their voice on the phone, they will hang up immediately. That individual, as far as they're concerned, is dead and they will not defile themselves by touching them in any way. And remember, we've been going over these sexual sins and everything, and so many of them, if they didn't deserve death, it was that they would be cut off from the face of their, pe of the, of their people. Complete. Complete. They were, even though they were alive, they were treated as if they were dead. So that meant they could never come back, never be accepted back into No the grace, no mercy in their, in, for their lives. And so God is saying, if, if it's any of those, if you've got a friend that's in either of those situations, you can't go to their, you know, you could grieve for them, but you couldn't go into their presence where, they, where you might touch their body because they were representing God. They were representing the people to God. They could not show that, that defilement. They could not make themselves common unless it was close kin. Close kin. Then they could go to the funeral. Now, if they were cut off from the people, I don't believe that they would be able to do that one because that's a little different one. They're totally cut off, and they would have to accept that that person is gone. And this is, this is a really interesting verse because he's saying you are to be different. You're to hold yourself different. The people of Israel were different from the rest of the world, and the priests were to be even more sanctified, more holy, more different. Okay, Just as we as Christians are to be different from the world, we're to be in a way that people look at us and say, yes, those people are the weird people that don't do all the things that we do. Okay? They don't, they don't go out and drink and, and do drugs and party and, and have what we consider a good time. They're, they're strange people. They're, they're not sleeping around. They're not doing, you know, these are the things we're not supposed to do. And we're to be separate from them. When people look at us, they see a different way of thinking. We are translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God changes the way we think. Sometimes it takes a long time for us to get our thinking changed. All right? And, that's, and this is a true statement. I mean, we're not instantly changed overnight to per being perfect. Was he not even allowed? What would happen if, of course, I'm speaking from a mother's heart and not a father's heart. I know that they're different, but they're both right. What if he just caught him off guard and all of a sudden the tears busted loose? In Aaron's case, he was told specifically not to. And we're going to see there's even a higher standard for him later on in this chapter. And it's not so much they weren't to be touching. They, they, couldn't, they could grieve. They just couldn't go be near the dead body. They couldn't prepare it for burial. They couldn't take it to burial. They couldn't do the things that would normally be done for a friend. Now, for family here, they could, again, the close family, they could go and and participate in the burial of that because it's family. Who's going to bury the dead if you don't bury your own dead back then? Uh, and the Levites and the, and, and the tribe of Aaron had to bury their own, their own dead. You know, that wasn't something the other tribes were going to do for them. So yes, the priest would have to step down and say, okay, I'm going to bury my family. Those two boys in particular. Those ones were burnt to a crisp anyway. Adab and Abihu were burnt. So it was a matter of 
So there was nothing, there was nothing, yeah, there was nothing there to, to get rid of. So, but Aaron was told he was not to grieve. How were they burned again? I forgot. God burnt them. They brought the, they, on the first day of service for the priest, they got wrapped up in it. Instead of using God's fire, they went out and made their own or got their own and brought the wrong fire, unauthorized fire, into, into their incense uh, sensors. And God said, you're gone. And possibly, yeah, there's, there's an idea that they might have been drunk and all that other stuff that... Uh, but God was very swift in their judgment because especially on the very first day of service, he didn't want anything done wrong. Right. And here they are, you know. It's an amazing thing as we talked about during that lesson is on the first day of the job, most people are careful to do exactly what they're told to do. Yes. Yeah, you're very nervous. You don't go off and just do your own thing on your first day. Now, maybe after a week or two or a month, a year you might be bending rules a little bit and, and, and trying to do your own thing, but not usually on the very first day. They, they, seemed, yeah, they seemed to know what they think, knew what they were doing. They thought they were helping God or whatever it was that they thought. But in this case, it's talking about your, your friend dies and they are not to go anywhere near that body so they would be defiled. Now remember, when you touch a dead body, you're ceremonially unclean until the evening. So they can't go in and around the dead bodies of friends. But he does allow them to go into the near, near, near relationships. And again, the only one near relationship that wouldn't count is, uh, is his sister who got married because she now belongs to another, another clan, another family. So, and, um, but this is where we're at with this, you know. And, and then it goes, it says, you shall not defile himself because he is a chief person among his family, of, among, among the people. Because he had this important position, he was not to make himself that he could not do his job. Okay, because if he defiled himself or until that night, he could not do the priest's job. So, and the reason being is that he's a chief person. He's up top. He is to be an example. Okay, the priest is considered very important to the people. And so he was to be honored and not, and not brought down to a common, common position. And yes, it would be hard. It would be hard not to go to your friend's funeral because you might touch him. It, might, it would be hard not to prepare your friend's body for, for burial, wrapping it, wrapping it in, the, in the spices and the oils and the, and the linen that they were to wrap the bodies in. So this would, be, this would be a hard command for them. Okay. Not as hard as Aaron's was to not even grieve for him, because he was told not even to grieve for his kids, because they got what they had deserved for disobedience. And, and God says, you represent me. You can't be crying for, the, for that punishment. The people, will, the people will grieve. Anytime they represent God, if they were representing God in a situation. So, you know, but it is, that is where he's at. And he says, okay, you shall not, because you're a chief man, you will not profane yourself, make yourself common. And that's what prof profane means. And it says, you shall not make baldness upon their head. Okay, they won't shave their head. And the reason being on this is that was the practice of the 
uh, Canaanites, when, when somebody would die, and they were mourning and, 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 per, and going into their idols, they would shave their head as a symbol to the gods of mourning and sadness and petition. So he said to the priest, you are not going to be like the Canaanites. You cannot shave your head. Now this doesn't go apply to, the, to everybody, but it definitely did to the priests. And then he says, you shall not shave the corners of your beard. Now, does anybody remember what we talked about when we talked about this before? They were not to round the corners. They were not to make decorations in their beards that honored the idols. Again, this is a Semite custom of the area. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Moabites, they would take their beard and they would cut them into the shapes of the idol that honored the idol. So they were not, the priests were specifically told not to do this, but so of the people. A couple chapters back, the people were told not to do this. That's why I asked, do you, remember, do you remember us talking about this? And they were not to make cuttings in their flesh. Again, cuttings for the dead. And it's amazing where in the past we had part of the religious practices were to cut. Cut the flesh, mutilate the flesh, draw your blood. We see it here, if you remember the story of the, uh, Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel, the, the high priests of, of Baal were cutting themselves, trying to grab his attention. And it's amazing that we're back to a day where people are starting to cut themselves. Our kids and teenagers are cutting themselves to, for whatever reason, but it's satanic in its orient, orientation to, to, to mutilate the body, to to feel something or whatever it might be, but here God's saying specifically, don't cut yourself. I've given you this body, don't mutilate it. All right? And it's just amazing to me how we're going full circle. We've talked about this in times past. All the sins that we're mentioning here, so many people think all this stuff is new. Everything that we're going through today has already been around for 6,000 years. That has been going on, this, these problems have been going on for so long because Satan's attacks are not new. The cutting of ourselves, the, the destruction of our body, the mutilating of our flesh. And it says, they shall be holy unto their God and not profane the name of their God. For the offering of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God do they offer, therefore they shall be holy. So he goes, the reason they're going to be this way is not because God's being mean and nasty and saying, I don't want you to be like everybody else, but because they represent him. They're to be holy. He says, you're to be holy unto their God and not profane the name of their God, not make his name common. Okay, this goes back to the same thing where God says, thou shalt not take the, Lord, the name of your Lord, the Lord God in vain. Not make it common, not use it in, in a vain, empty way. And we're in, a, we're in a generation that uses God's name in vain all the time without even thinking about it. Our, our teens use that little abbreviation on their phones, OMG, oh my God. Okay, they're using God's name in vain all the time. Now, they're just not saying the word God. You know, and it's very important that we understand this. In the, in the 50s, I remember people would, instead of saying, you know, they would say GD. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as if anybody didn't know they were using God's name in vain without using his name, they still meant it. 
They still meant it. It's still the same thing because everybody knew what GD meant. Okay, it, it, it really was using his name in vain and really even worse, cursing with his name. So it was even more using his name in vain. Well, it's, it's a 50s thing. Uh, you know, it's, uh, by the 60s and 70s, it was gone. But in the 50s, if you watch any old movies, a lot of times you'll hear it. In some of the old movies, it was the way they could curse without, without um, you know. And you think about this, the, the words that are substituted in for these curse words sometimes. You know, and to me, it, it's even worse because you actually have to think to substitute this, the light case word in instead of saying what you really wanted to say in the first place. Right, and then you say, "Well, no, I can't say that word, so I'm going to say some other <laughs> word in, in substitution for it." Yeah, but even beyond that, it's it's just we use euphemisms all the time. Okay, uh, you know, my mom was a big one. She would go, "Oh, fudge!" <laughs> you know, and everybody who knew knew what, she, what the word would have normally been in that case. I yeah, huh? I, I say rasmusticism. There's no such word. word. Substituted word. I use rats. 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 So we, we all have those type of words where they substitute something that is not the right word, but you know, it, but by the same token, you have to think a lot more to say the you know to say the wrong word, the 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 replacement word in its place, or you get so used to it, but it's still you're still having your mindset for the wrong wrong direction. Extreme uh, you, you don't know what to say. Better not to say anything. Well, yeah, but we're women. I mean, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter said, mm -hmm. Lord, shall we make booze for you? And why did, it, why did it say that he said it? Because he didn't know what to say. And so instead of being silent, he had to say something. And biblically, we were instructed pretty much, if you don't have anything to say, stay quiet. <laughs> you know, and it's very important for us to learn to stay quiet sometimes because it's important that we stay quiet. And he says, you're not to profane the name of God. You're, you're holy unto God because they, off, they bring the offerings of, of the Lord made by fire. And that would be the burnt offering, the trespass offering, the, the meal offering, all the, all the offerings that went to God to be burnt on the altar, some part of being burnt on the altar, and the bread offering of their, of their God. And what's the bread offering? Does anybody remember what the bread offering is? It's put in the holy place every seven days. Yeah, the, the 12, 12 loaves of the showbread. The showbread was put in on in the in the in there, twelve of them, one, and sprinkled with the oil and the and the frankincense. They do offer, therefore they shall be holy. They, he's saying you're going to be holy because you're coming into my presence. You're bringing things to my presence. This is why we have grace and we have the blood of Christ and God has declared us to be perfect so that we can come into his presence and be holy because he has declared us so. And he's declared us so knowing that we will be perfect and holy at either the rapture or our death, whichever comes first for us. 
So he says, you're to do this because you are to be holy. All right, verse 7. They shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for he is holy unto his God. You shall sanctify him, therefore, and he, for he offers the bread of, the, of, the, of God. He shall be holy unto you, for I am the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy. So the, the bride of the priest, okay, when he looked for a bride, he was not to take somebody that practiced prostitution or whoredom or basically was a loose girl when going out and, and, and having sex with everybody. That was, they were ruled out and profane or put away from her husband. He was not to take a, a woman who was divorced. So that left him with either a virgin or a widow. He was not to take a prostitute, somebody who was in prostitution or whoredom or who had been put away by her, from her husband. And the reason again, because he is holy unto God. He is to be righteous. He is to be holy. And this is why when you read the book of Hosea, you know, Hosea is a prophet of God, and God tells him to go marry a prostitute. Can you imagine that conversation? Uh, God, uh, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Oh, no way, God. I'm a good, I'm a good Bible-believing, law-abiding Jew. There's no way I'm going to go marry a prostitute. I want you to go marry that prostitute. What was her name? Uh, Gomer. Gomer. Yeah, you know, and could you imagine that conversation going to mom and dad and saying, "Hey, I'm supposed to go marry this prostitute. Who, who, who do you think you are? You're not marrying a prostitute." Well, God told me to. I don't know what God you've been listening to, son, but you're definitely you've definitely been listening to the wrong person. You know, you can. You, I I think about these these uh, these thoughts sometimes when when somebody is told to do something that is so contrary to the norm, and I think about poor Mary when she had to go tell mom and dad, you know, hey mom and dad, I'm pregnant with God's child, with the Messiah. You know, you know how well that went over with mom and dad. You know the Bible doesn't say that, but uh, <laughs> Joseph had his dream. Um, I'm wondering if daddy might have had a dream too, mm -hmm. to protect this child, to protect its mother. Joseph was the one that did that for her by, by accepting it by accepting the child to accepting her with the child he was the one that protected her because once she had been pledged to him he was her he was her protector at that time but i've really thought you know how would i have felt if my daughter came to me and gave me this message it would have been yeah right you know you and joseph been uh, getting getting together a little too too close here too early you know and then when Joseph accepted her, we've talked about this, when Joseph accepted her to continue to be his bride, he basically confirmed to the entire village, this is my child. Because there was no way that, that in reality that he would have accepted it otherwise in their minds. And so, he wasn't about to tell them the truth, because then it would have really been right. Even if they did, nobody would have believed him anyway, and we don't know that he did or didn't, but... Nobody, nobody believed her. Well, I'm sure she told everybody that this is what God did, and Joseph could have, but nobody's going to believe them. Everybody, everybody knows biology. Everybody knows biology. You don't have a baby without a man and a woman getting together. And plain and simple <laughs> fact of life. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit told Elizabeth through John, and that's why Mary didn't tell her. Yeah. 
she mm -hmm. told Mary. Yeah, she just prophesied, you know, blessed are you. So, but all of this is because they're an example to their people. They are in a holy place. They have to have a standard that's higher than anybody else's standard because of who they are. And this is why even in the New Testament, pastors, deacons, bishops, all are held to a higher standard than the rest of the people because they are an example to the people. They are a person who is supposed to present Jesus to the people they work with, the people that they are teaching and, and, and shepherding. Holy calling to be called by God to be in those positions because any teacher has a higher standard. Any teacher, because we are an example. Paul told the, the people, follow me as I follow Christ, which meant that he was trying hard to be a godly man that was holy, letting God lead. And he's saying, as long as I'm following Christ, follow me. I'm going to be your example. I'm going to teach you how to get into the word, how to study the word, how to, I'm going to you know, exegete the word. I'm going to teach you what God wants you to understand. And he says, follow me as I'm following God. Now, if you are following a teacher and it's a godly man that you're, you're leading, it's good. Follow them. Follow their example. If they're going off into left field, you keep going to the right field where God's at and leave them behind. But as long as they're being godly, then they're somebody that's worthy of being followed. And this is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is teaching somebody how to walk with God. And each one of us should be discipling somebody. That we sit down with them, we share the scriptures with them, we, we guide them when, when they're making bad decisions, the discipler comes in beside them and say, hey, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're making some poor decisions here. Let's, let's try to get back on track here. Let's, let's think about what we're doing. We had a conversation the other night where you asked me to be careful that I wasn't being pushy with the Lord. And I asked her this morning, uh, and I told her you were the one, and I said, uh, I need to know. We've talked about everything under the sun for almost 30 years. If I'm getting pushy, or it's too much, or it's the wrong time, don't worry about offending me. Let me know. She said, I don't. I love talking to you and listening to you, but not when Kate's here. <laughs> and I said, okay, you got a deal. Mm -hmm. It just really helps sometimes to get it out in the open. Yep. Yep. So this whole idea that they're able to just go out and they had to be careful who they picked for a wife as a priest. And because they are an example. They were lifted up. And God didn't want, because whatever the leaders can do, the people following them will do more of. And it's the old, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And, and you see it all the time. You, if you're working in a company with multiple levels of management, whatever the managers feel they can get away with, you'll see multiplied by the employees underneath them, unless the manager's riding them with a, with a whip all the time. But you know, if there's any kind of freedom at all, if the manager takes five or 10 minutes extra on their breaks, the, the employees are going to take 20. Uh, and it rolls on down. You see it with kids. kids. Kids amazingly watch us. Our kids watch everything we do. 
What do we watch? What do we listen? How do we act? If you have kids in your life and nieces, nephews, cousins that are younger, they watch you. They want to know what it is that's acceptable as a Christian. And you know what? It breaks their heart when they, when you, when they see their parents or their grandparents or their uncles and, and aunts doing things that they know are wrong or that they're not allowed to do, and yet they do it. And it's, it is hard. And kids are very sensitive to this double standard, and so are we, actually. We all are. If, if, if you have a pastor telling you, don't do this, don't do this, and then he's off doing what he's telling you not to do, you're going to look at him and say, what a hypocrite. You know, how can that person be telling us this? And it's very critical. People watch. And this is what God's saying. The priests are to have a high standard because the people are watching them on how do you serve God. How do you manage to come to God? And very critical. And this is why I say, we've got to get into the word of God. We've got to read. And, and I'm very clear with you, with you all. If I don't read first thing in the morning, I'm in trouble just like anybody else. Because I will get busy and I will forget. And if I try to read at bedtime, it's forget it because it's just going to be words on a piece of paper going in the brain and going right back out because I'm tired and exhausted. So it's, and it's very important to to get yourself into the habit and, and be able to study God's word. You know, and again, I've said, I want to start people on reading it, but eventually I want to encourage people to study. Dig. Dig deep. Get into it. You know how we're talking about having ambition or, or being excited about it? Well, Steve, is after you have that, you have a passion for it, to read the Bible every morning. If you mm-hmm. have he makes it a passion. You make it a passion more than just, I said that you, we should have more, be more excited for the Lord, you know, and more excited about reading the Bible. And Steve last night said, not just pa- uh, excited, but you have a passion for it. For I like that. And, that. and that really shows where your heart is because you start trudging through and it's just you're trying to make a habit out of it. Eventually, it should become something you're excited and passionate about because it is our food. And that's the example I love because I love to eat. Are we to the point where we, if we don't eat of the word, that we are starving in our spirit? We need to get to that place where we are starving if we're not into his word. Just as if we had gone all day without eating or, or a week without eating, and how passionate we would be when that meal finally came, we need to have that same desire for his word to, to go after it. Verse 9, And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profanes her father, she shall be burnt with fire. Okay, this is pretty stringent. Okay, because if you remember when we studied last week about the, the penalty for, for fornication for the woman and the man that wasn't in adultery was just to be cut off from the face of the, of the people. But if it's the daughter of the priest, she is to be burnt. Before being being burnt, she, she gets stoned. Mm, doesn't say that anywhere in here. So I know I know it didn't say that either in the. Praise 
in the in the Greek. Okay. Oh, they're referencing. Yeah. She has to die. She dies. Yeah. But it's not just dying because the normal death is stoning. Because there was other, there were, if you remember, there were a couple others that had to be burnt for their, yeah. for because what they did was so horrendous to God, in their example that they were to be burnt. Uh, a man who takes a wife and her mother is a wickedness. They shall be burnt with fire. Okay, there are certain sins in there that are so horrendous that God says, no, they're not. You're not even stoning them. They are to be totally. They both must be burnt. With yeah. Fire. Which would be actually all three of them in that particular case. So alive or stoned to death and then... According to what Linz is trying to say, you, they were stoned first and then burnt, but either way, I don't know. I'm not going to... I didn't look, I've never, I didn't look into the actual... All I know is what it says in the scripture, and I take it literally unless it says something else in there. Uh, because the death, you know... But this is so bad. And why is it bad? Because she has basically said, my father hasn't taught me how to live, and he must not be, and by consequence, he's saying, he obviously must not be living correctly, okay? And that may or may not be true, but it's the old adage, where there's smoke, there's fire type mentality. So if people see that he has no control over his family, they're going to say, he does not have control of himself. And again, we see the same principle in, to be a deacon, you had to be able to have a household that was under control. You had, if you were to be a elder, you had to have your house in line. Okay, you weren't to have rebellious kids because obviously, if you had rebellious kids, you didn't know how to train your kids. If you can't train your kids, how can you train a church? But yet, Samuel was a good man, a godly man. God feared Loving, passionately loving God, and his sons were out of control, mm -hmm. just like Eli's were. Because neither one of them spent time training their kids. And Samuel was always gone. God, he was gone on his little circuit, not, not training his kids. And this is why God places the responsibility of training the kids in the father's domain. Okay, he said, "Fathers, train up your children." In multiple places, he says, fathers. And it used to be pretty easy before the industrial age when the men left the house. In, in times past, when you had an agrarian society, the fathers easily trained their kids because the kids were there helping you. What kind of society? Farm, agrarian, far, farming. You know, when it was time to rake out the barn, you brought your kids out and they raked out the barn. And you know, hey, son, good hard work is good for you. And, you know, it honors God. And you to talk to them while you worked and, and teach them how they should act and how and they were right there with you as you interacted with other people that may have been good or bad and, and how you honored God with them. And so it was very easy because you were right there with them. And it was a good time to say, Dad, can I ask you a question? Right, you're right there working with them. Dad's gone 8 to 12 hours a day. Right. You're not there. And even when you are there, you're not, you know, with that good timing as you said the good time because men you men a lot of times will take their kids to sporting good games or even hunting and stuff not so much just to teach them those skills but also just to have an intimate time with their child and there's a lot of conversations that go on between fathers and sons or even daughters and and fathers you know if, it, if they bring their daughters out during those times because men like to do things while they talk 
We're not like women who like to look at each other and just talk for a long period. Men like to do things. As long as I'm doing something, I can talk to somebody in many cases. And so that's how men train other men. That's how discipling for men go. We, you bring them with you. Here, we're going to show you how to do this. We're going to show you how to witness. You're going to be right here with me as I do it. And it's very important for us to learn that. And, and, and God's saying, obviously, if the daughter goes wild, basically, even whether it's true or not, they're going to believe that he does not have control of the family. And so she is to be killed. Now, I would almost guarantee that he's going to have a little lessening of his position as well from that point. Because there's going to be a looking at him that he wasn't training his family, even though they're not removing him from office. It's interesting that Eli nor Samuel either one, because their favorite characters of mine, and therefore I know a little bit more about it. But if they had any daughters, they got, they're not mentioned. Very, very infrequently are daughters mentioned, period. Because the daughters are kept at home under Mama's skirt tail. Well, as we've talked about for right or wrong, during this, during this period of time, women were property. They weren't really individuals. You, they were the property of the father until he married her off, and then he was, she was the property of her husband. Now, we've seen different women who grew, up, you know, grew in stature and, and got to be known a little bit, but they're the rare case. And we know that women had honor in Israel because we look at the Proverbs 31 woman who is out earning a living and taking care of her family and, and doing everything we would expect. She was running the house, basically. Uh, then we look at Jesus really lifting women up to a high standard. And, the, and all through the New Testament, women are really raised up from where they have been in the past. And Christianity changed the position of women. And in the countries where Christianity has held sway, women have had rights develop. In the countries where Christianity does not hold sway, women are still basically property. In the Middle East, they're still, for all practical purposes, property. In Asia, they're property. In South America, they're still pretty much property, even though Catholicism reigns in most of South America, there's still a lot of them that are considered just so much property without a whole lot of rights. Most of Africa, they're considered profit, property. And for American women, they have a hard time understanding that mentality because there's so much freedom. There's so much freedom brought about by the rising up of the Bible being taught and the fact that all are created equal. There is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, no, no uh, Scythian or barbarian, you know, all the different ways that it's talked about, that God says they're equal because they're made in my image. And without the image of God being in there, there's no special place for people. Then we get into the whole thing that we're trying to be taught. We're just a bunch of, you know, highly developed animals, and whoever's strongest gets to have their will pushed down on the others. And this is, that's what the bottom line, when we look at what's going on around us and the violence that is going around us, it is the natural outcome of evolutionary teaching. The strong prevail. The, the survival of the fittest. If I'm strong enough to win, then my will gets input on everybody else. And this is the outcome, the violence, the evil one against the other is the natural outcome of evolutionary teaching. Because 
The lion who's killing to survive is not going to feel sad that he killed the poor sick elk or antelope or whatever else they're eating. You know, if he did, he wouldn't live long. Right. Uh, and even before Christianity, a handicapped child would have been killed. Predator mentality. A predator mentality, you know, the, the strong survive. A, a, a handicapped child would, be, would just be killed. Uh, too many children, get rid of some. The warrior wounded in battle didn't get honor because he was no longer able to be a warrior. He would just be left to die or beg for a living. When, and for a warrior, he'd just as soon die. Uh, if you were disabled and you managed to get left, you were at the mercy of the people who might feel sorry for you as you begged for a few crusts of bread. And you would be lucky to find anybody who cared enough to give you anything in that day and age. They didn't even have utensils back then. Well, yeah. They had knives and spoons. We could put this off another thousand years with Christ's return. Why would we want to? It can happen. I mean, that's where we started out yesterday's class on. The, the return is imminent. And it can, there's nothing that has to be done to, for him to return. But because it has been said that his return is soon for 2,000 years now, if he waits for another, three, another 1,000 years, it's still soon to God. Mm -hmm. All right? It's still, he's, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere, time. He's outside of time. He's lived for, forever, literally forever. So even the entire history of earth is just a blink, not even a twinkle of an eye to God. Why would any, I, I know that it's a terrible day that's coming, and we shouldn't look for it longingly. But on the other hand, <coughs> why would we want this forever? Why would you not want it? Do you know anybody in your life that's not saved? That's the only reason. Anybody who knows anybody who's not saved wants as much time as possible. Yeah. <coughs> if they truly care about the unsaved. In that, in that aspect, yes, we, every one of us should want God to not be coming back in our lifetime because we, we all know people who aren't saved. But it should also spur us to make sure that we've given the gospel to those people because time is short. We don't know if we have, we don't know that we have another 30 seconds. Turn or enthusiasm into passion. So, you turn that enthusiasm into passion to save the unsaved. Uh, all right, verse 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil is poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head nor rend his clothes, neither shall he go into any dead body or defile himself for his father or for his mother, neither shall he go into the, out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. Now the high priest couldn't even go if it was his close family. And you can't get any closer than your mother or father. So that's why they stopped there. He cannot go out for anybody to go to touch that body, to prepare that body. Because he represents Jesus Christ in the in their in their in the group. Jesus took the blood and presented it to the Holy of Holies. He is the one that has been anointed 
with the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil that has been poured over his head that consecrates him, that gives him the right to wear all those garments that we spent all that time in Exodus going over. The, the miter, the breastplate, the, the shoulder pads, the, the thumen and the cumin. He was to be a step even above the priests. He was not even, and you look at this, it said, among his brethren, he shall not uncover his head nor rent his clothes. He wasn't even, this goes back to what Aaron was told, he was not even to grieve the loss publicly because he is the example of the one that goes before God. And remember, death is the, the ultimate. No matter whether it's an a easy death or a natural death, it's still the result of sin because sin brought death into this world. So he cannot grieve for the death because it would be saying sin, sin was okay and it you know, and is, has a much higher standard. And he's definitely not to tear the clothes. He wears the high priest garments. And, he, and it's because he has, as it said, the crown of the anointing oil. He has been anointed with the oil, the special oil of service and, and worship. And remember, what does the oil represent? The Holy Spirit. The oil represents the Holy Spirit on him. And, and he was, says, I am the Lord. I dwell into you. I'm the one that makes you holy. I'm the one that sanctifies you. Verse 13, and he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a profane or a harlot. These shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people for a wife. Neither shall he profane his seed among his people, for the Lord, I the Lord, do sanctify him. Okay, so he's restricted even further than the rest of the priest. He can only take an unmarried, pure woman. Now, if you think about this, this means that most of the priests, if they have any ambition to ever be high priest, are not going to take a divorced woman because if they did, or a widowed woman, even though it was allowed to them, they're going, no, if I want to be high priest, I can't take one of these women for my wife. So most of the priests, I would tell you, in practice, probably only married virgins. They didn't marry anybody who was a widow or, or any Those other. Days, how old was a virgin? Until she was married. 13? No, they got married as young as 10. 10, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you were, if you weren't, if you weren't, well, no, that's not a true statement. You said, you said that they didn't live that long. Infant mortality rates were so high up until very recently that if you lived past six to eight years old, you would most likely live to be 60 or 80 years old. Okay, but you would have five to ten infants dying for every one or two that lived. So your infant, your, your mortality in an average dropped down to these 30 and 40 years. But in reality, once you pass infancy or child, early childhood, you were pretty sure to, to live unless you went out to battle or... Yeah, well, just... Well, child diseases, the fact that many of them were offered to idols or just thrown into rivers, I mean. Uh, but it is, you think about the life, life expectancy hasn't changed really greatly. 
Now we have longer expectancy because when, especially in America, when we have a child born, we expect that child to live to old age. You know, if a child dies, we kind of look at it like, what do the parents do wrong? Because we don't have childhood diseases. We protect our kids. We've got all these different things. So, um, but in this case, he's saying, you know, they're not to take anybody. They're, the high priest is only to have a virgin wife. And so this is something that he's going to be looking at. And it says, he shall not profane his seed among his people. He's not going to mix his seed as the, Roy, as the Aaron tribe. They could only marry an Israelite. They could not marry somebody outside of the, of the land. Boaz married Ruth, the Moabitess, who, be, who had proselytized into Judaism. A priest could not have married her because, or the high priest anyway, could not have married her because she was not of the people of Israel. When she was a widow, so yeah, there was two reasons why. So, all right, verse 16. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of your seed in their generations that have any blemish, let him not approach unto the, to offer the bread of his God. For whoso, whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame, he that hath a flat nose, or, he, or any superfluous... A, or a man that is a broken-footed or broken-handed, a crook-back or a dwarf, or that hath a blemish in his eye, or scurvy or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that has a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He has a blemish, and he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of God. He shall eat the bread of the, his God, both uh, the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go in into the veil, nor come nigh unto the altar, because he has a blemish, for that he profane not my sanctuary, for I, the Lord, do sanctify them. And Moses told it in Aaron and his sons, and unto the children of Israel. So let's look at this one a little bit. Blemishes, and this one's quite broad in what they're considering blemishes. Uh, but if the child of Aaron, the priest, had a blemish, this long list of blemish, they could not serve as a priest. Okay? They could not make the offerings. They could not go into the holy place. They definitely could not go into the holy of holies. Okay? And it said they were going to be able to eat the show bread. They were going to be able to participate in the food that the prophet, that the priest got. And where did the priests get their food? From the people, from the sacrifice, so from some of the sacrifices that, were, that they got to share. Okay? And so the, the ones with blemish would be able to eat the food, but they would not be able to make the offering. Oh, I'm talking about the high priest. They can't even be a priest at all? They cannot perform the job of the priest. They would technically have a title of priest, but they could not perform any priestly job. So... Technically, they're not even going to have the title. They were, they were able to eat the food because they were Aaron's sons, but they would not be able to go do the job that the priests would do. Would they be able to go in and clean and take care of stuff? They would probably be doing that because that was the Levite's job. So they would probably be allowed to do the Levite's jobs. Aaron was a Levite, but not all Levites are priests. No, I know. 
So they would be able to do some of the Levites' jobs. When the Levites were the ones that did the day-to-day -day maintenance of the tabernacle, uh, the priests were busy carving up the animals and putting them on the fire and taking care of the holy place and the, and the holy of holies, which the Levites would not enter either one of those two places. I got another question on number 18. We're getting there. Okay. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's look at this. The blemishes, that they're not going to approach to the, offer the bread of his God in that. And these are physical defects or moral defects. If somebody is so more morally inclined that they, and that's what superfluous means, being evil. That means evil? Yeah. He shall, so it says, if he has a blemish, he shall not approach a blind man or a lame man. Those are pretty, pretty obvious. We know what lame and blind are. He that has a flat nose, and I'm not sure about this one. I, I think that his nose has been pushed down into him somehow. I think it may talk about more of like a cleft cleft palate situation where the nose has pretty much disappeared through a de physical defect. In my sense, it's bigger or deformed. Deformed nose, yeah. So that's why I'm thinking, I'm thinking more of the terms that this flat nose was probably something along the lines of the cleft palate that takes away the whole nose area oftentimes. What did you say super? Superfluous is, has to do with evilness. It has that moral evenness. What does it say in your Amplified on uh, verse 18 at the end? Uh, okay. Disfigured face or a limb. Doesn't deal okay. with superfluity. This is for man who has blemish shall, shall approach God's altar to serve as priest. A man blind or lame or he who has disfigured face or limb too long. Okay, it doesn't even deal with it at all then. Okay. Superfluity refers most often to that the moral, moral problems. Or a man that is broken-footed or broken-handed. I think this would be talking about club, club foot or club hand, not just a broken bone. Or, or if you've broken it, and in those days they didn't heal properly, and you worked with a limp or you had deformed hands, so broken wood fit in there. A crook back, a hump back, <laughs> that big hump on the back that you have when you're dis disfigured. A dwarf, or he has a blemish of an eye, and this blemish means an obscurity or a confusion of the eye. They can't see, they're not blind, but they can't see clearly. In other words, most likely something like nearsightedness. Not yeah, nearsighted where they can, can't distinguish things from a distance. Uh, have scurvy, the, the itching scabs, or scabbed, and that's skin eruptions, or has his stones broken, and that literally means his testicles have been crushed. Oh, jeez. That is what it means. It's such a poetic, old English poetic way of saying that. I didn't say that at all. <laughs> what is your saying? What, what version do you have? NIV. Yeah. And what does it say? Would that be 20? Yeah. Or who is hunchback or dwarf who has any eye defect or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles? Yeah. Yep. So, very, very graphic on some of these things. And no. And the King James puts it in, in very flowery, poetic language. So, so no eunuchs. Could be. <laughs> no, you wouldn't, wouldn't be a eunuch.
running sores can so any blemish was it was out. Why? Because again, the priest represent Jesus in the in the tabernacle, and Jesus was the Lamb without blemish. They were to be the high priest, and the high priest was offering before God. He could not come before God with blemishes. He had to be prayed up, confessed up, had the sacrifice offered for him first before he could even be appear before God. And they came in and out before the holy place all the time before God, so that God has a standard. Is it a fair standard? I don't know. God's, God's perfectly fair. To us it may not appear fair, but it is God saying they are an example of perfection ministering. And it's the same thing for us. We cannot minister to God without being saved and declared perfect and putting on the righteousness of Christ. If we try to do things in our own flesh, it's rejected because no flesh can stand before God. And so we're sitting there saying, we serve God and the reason we can serve him is because we have no, perf- no blemishes as far as he's concerned. No damage as far as he's concerned because Jesus has covered us. We go before the Father and he says, perfect, <laughs> perfection standing before me. I can accept you, you can serve. We've gone through the veil of blood. We're perfect in God's sight. In God's sight, we're perfect. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. Yeah. And this is why it's, I, I hammer this a lot, but we need to understand. In God's sight, he has declared us perfect. That is why we can come before his throne with, with, at any time we want, day or night, and come before the very presence. We are righteous and holy in his sight. We've accepted Jesus Christ. He has clothed us in him. He is perfecting us over our, over our walk. He is sanctifying us. But God says, from the moment we're saved, perfect. Perfect. Here, put on the righteousness of Christ. This is how I'm going to see you. We're not. We know we're not. In reality, we are not perfect. But God, the moment we're saved, sees us as we will be. And he's going to spend our lifetime perfecting us. close. No, uh, I mean, no we're, never, we're never to think of ourselves as perfect. But in the court of heaven, on a legal court of heaven, God has said, we are perfect. When Satan comes to stand before the Father and says, you know that child of yours down there, the, that one who has been doing, such, you know, doing these things wrong? And he looks down and says, well, all I see is my son Jesus uh, and, my, and my perfect children down there. It's just like in our court system if you declare bankruptcy. In reality, you still owe those people. You know, in, in, in truth, you owe the people that the court has declared you don't owe anymore. They can't collect it from you. Morally, you probably owe it to them. But legally, you don't owe anything because the, bank, the court has said you don't owe. And they cannot collect from you. That is what God has done in heaven. When, he, when we come before him and we accept Jesus Christ, paid in full. Their sin is paid in full. They are perfect. And that's how he sees us from that point on. Now the Holy Spirit works with us and Jesus works with us, but God the Father looks down and says, 
All I got is a bunch of per perfect kids down there. You know, because he living outside of time says saved, glorified. And he skips sanctified. He says they're saved and they will be glorified, so I'm gonna say they're they're perfect from even though they're spending decades trying to live right, they are perfect. And you know, this is something I was thinking about today. Our reward in heaven is a gift of grace. Okay? I've said it all along. God's plan is perfect. He does the work through us, and then he gives us the reward. It's grace. It's nothing that I've worked for. All of my reward for eternity is a perfect gift of grace. I don't deserve it. It's only because he did the work through me that I get it. So everything about God and us is grace. We, we, I want to emphasize this. The power of grace, the beauty of grace is so precious. Grace brought Jesus to the cross to pay for our sins. Grace allows us to be brought to him to be our savior. Grace allows us to be covered by the blood and have our sins forgiven. Grace is what he does when he works through us and then gives us the reward for working through us. Getting what we don't deserve. Getting what we don't deserve. Yes. The power of grace is so wonderful. Grace is what we need to learn to be able to pour out on one another. We don't get what we deserve. We shouldn't be trying to give others what they deserve. We should be trying to give them what they don't deserve. Love. Oh, it's not easy. Oh, believe me, it's not easy. But as all spiritual things, the more we do it, the easier it gets. And mercy is? Not getting what we deserve. Mercy is where we start. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And it is a perfect example if we got what we deserved, the moment we, the very first sin we ever committed, we would be killed if we got what we deserved. Yeah. That means nobody in this world would have lived past probably three or four years old at the oldest. Because they would have sinned, they would have known they've sinned, and they would have died on the spot if they got what they deserved. Yes. M-E-R-C-Y. Okay, M-E-R-C-Y. -E right, yeah. I spelled it right. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you're showing us that we are to be examples, but also that you are the only one that can make us those examples. You make us pure. You make us righteous. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your love and that you give us reward, eternal rewards because of your grace and your love. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.